morning, church. If you brought a Bible, I want you to open it to Matthew's biography in the fifth chapter, all right? Go to Matthew chapter 5. It's going to take me a long time to get there. We'll examine the passage at the very end of the message, but that's where we're going to read in just a little while. One of my favorite pastimes in college was spelunking. Uh, we called it caving. There are literally hundreds of natural caves in the mountains surrounding Chattanooga, Tennessee, where I went to school. Now, some of those caves have been commercialized. They've, uh, they've got signage, and you pay a fee, and there's a guided tour, but the ones we preferred were completely 100% natural. You had to know where they were. They weren't obvious. Usually, we'd drive in cars, a whole group of us. We'd find ourselves on a dirt road up in the mountains. We'd pull off into the, to the woods and park. Then we'd hike down the mountain, and there it would be. And usually, we'd have to rappel into the cave using rappelling gear. And when you got down to the bottom, you were in for a real treat. Um, one of the things about caving in Chattanooga is you better know where they are uh, because they're hard to find. And the other thing is you better know what you're doing. You better not get lost because you weren't liable to see anybody for the hours you spent 100 or 200 feet below the surface of the ground. Now, when you go caving, you need two indispensable tools. You need a really old pair of clothes, number one. Because the bottom of those caves, muddy and damp and wet, it's just complete and total dirt and mud. So when you came out after several hours, you had basically ruined a pair of clothing. But the most important tool you needed was a good light. A good light. Because I've never seen darkness like I've seen it in the bowels of a cave. You turn off your light, you literally cannot see your hand in front of your face. It is a very eerie feeling. No one wants to be stranded in a cave without a light. We'd spend hours exploring those caves. We would find all kinds of things left by people who had been there before us. After three, four hours in a cave, we would climb to the surface, and we were filthy, and we were exhausted, and we'd drive back to campus. Today, we're going to examine the importance of light in our world. Now, before I get started, I want to make one thing perfectly clear. Today, the message is not political. I don't want you to hear a political message from me today. Here's what I want the message to be. I want it to be alarming, number one, but then I want it to be hopeful, number two, because the world is a muddy, muddy place. You need a good light. Have you ever paused and considered what the world would look like if you removed all the light? What if every follower of Jesus across the planet, everyone committed to truth, everyone committed to light, everyone committed to goodness and virtue, what if we were all gone? What would the world look like then? Today's the fifth in a six-part series entitled Influence. And we want to remind you that you have influence, that you're part of God's plan, no matter how insignificant you feel or no matter how insignificant I may be, we are part of God's plan for humanity. In week one, when we gathered, we talked about the church and its impact in culture. Skeptics today do not necessarily deny the truth of the gospel. They question the goodness of the gospel. And if that is truly the case, then you and I, followers of Christ, the church, we have to be willing to accept some of that blame. In week number two, we talked about our friendships and our relationships. We talked about how important our words are in either building up or tearing down our relationships. In week number three on Mother's Day, we talked about family. 
there is no, without question, there is no greater influencer in our lives than our upbringing. I am who I am. You are who you are, largely because of your upbringing, your parents. Last time, Tyler addressed the subject of work. Even in the workplace, you have influence. It is not illegal to pray in the workplace in America, at least not yet. It is not illegal to read your Bible on a lunch break at work. It is not illegal to engage in a God dialogue in the workplace. Jesus expects us to use our influence in the workplace. Today we're going to talk about our world. We're going to address the influence that we have in our world. Popular culture is what it is largely because we are who we are. Again, what would the world look like? What would culture look like if you removed all of the light? And this influence has nothing to do with our political agenda. It has nothing to do with how we vote. It has everything to do with how we use our influence in culture. I don't know if you're aware, but almost every study in America today demonstrates that Americans are very concerned about the direction of our country, more so than at any other time in our history. You can't avoid the conversation because no matter where you go, somebody's going to talk about gas prices. Somebody's going to talk about interest rates. Somebody's going to talk about inflation. Somebody's going to talk about the housing market. Somebody's going to talk about the LGBT uh, uh, awareness and agenda. It's everywhere. The list goes on. Let me remind you of something, church. The promises contained in this book are for days like ours. The promises contained in the Bible are for now. I bring that to your attention because when I go throughout the community and I talk to followers of Christ, people who attend church every weekend, they seem overly concerned. They seem fearful even. They're frightened. Many of them are angry. Let me just remind you, the promises that you have on your daily calendar, the promises that pop up in your phone app on your cell phone, they are for today. They are for days like ours. They are for times like these. You see, I think, and if we're honest and transparent, we might own up to this. I think we like the idea of having God's promises out there, promises of his sovereignty. God is in control. Promises of safety, protection, promises of help, promises of peace in times of need. We like having them out there, but we hope never to need them, right? We would far prefer to elect the right people, vote the right way, pass the right laws. If we can get the right people in government, well, then we won't need God's promises. It's as if we'd prefer to rely upon ourselves than the promises of God. Today in America, there are growing public cries for shared wealth and an all-encompassing government. Many around us, millions across America, are calling for more government control, expanded government. And many in the church believe these are signs of the end times as recorded in the Bible. Well, it's actually quite interesting if you were to study it. In the Great Tribulation, according to the Bible, there will be one government and one leader. That's socialism. One state and one leader. One system and one leader. It comes from passages like Revelation 13, verse 3. John wrote, The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. In the book of Revelation, the beast is a reference to the Antichrist, that one world leader. The Antichrist was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. The Antichrist was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. That day is out there, church, and it's going to occur during the Great Tribulation. One leader and one system of government will be the way of the Antichrist. 
Christ. And as I stated, millions of America, Americans are actually buying in to expanded government and more government control. A 2020 poll revealed that 40% of Americans have a favorable view towards socialism. 40%. That's nearly half. The number is even greater among young people. Ages 18 to 24, the number is 61% who hold a favorable view of socialism. Socialism is tailor-made for the Great Tribulation and Antichrist. There's no other way around it because it's one world system, one government, and one leader. Government control, very little freedom. These are the days that John describes in Revelation and Daniel describes in the Old Testament. I personally believe that if the recent pandemic had been any worse, we would have seen this to greater extents or greater lengths. I mean, think about it. Under the guise of a world health crisis, the freest nation in, a, in the world lost much of its freedom, and we've still yet to regain some of it. I want to begin by asking a question. What is socialism? What is socialism? You've heard the word. Politicians in our government use the word. The word runs rampant across college campuses in America. What is socialism? Let me give you three synonyms. Marxism communism, and cultural Marxism. Now, the politicians don't like the latter three, so they stick with the word socialism. It's more palatable to the masses. Socialism is the bringing together of America's infrastructure, everything under one state head. That means all of our farming, all of our industry, all of our medicine, all of our education, all of our public services. That means everything we know in private industry, in technology, comes under the control of, quote, the people. That's what socialism teaches. Under the guise of fairness, under the guise of equality, under the guise of retribution, everything of value belongs to the people. You see, in a free society, these, are belong, these belong to the private sector. In a free society, there are those who have taken the risk. They've made the investment. They've built the building. They've created the business. But in a socialist or communist country, these are controlled by, quote, the people. And on the surface, it sounds fair. It sounds just. It seems reasonable. I mean, there'd be no more rich people. But then again, most importantly, there'd be no more poor people. But follow me. The people is a very misleading term. The people is misleading terminology. Because it would be impossible for the masses, 329 million Americans, to be in charge of medicine. It would be impossible for the masses to be in charge of industry. It would be impossible for us to all come together and be in charge of anything regarding infrastructure. You see, in reality, in a socialist context, specific people have all the control. Specific people hold all the power. The power doesn't reside with the people, with you and me. The power resides with specific, already powerful people in Washington. The government. Not people elected by us, but the government who's appointed by other government officials. They're the ones with complete and total autonomy, complete and total control in a socialist environment. Listen, church, my Bible and my personal experience tell me that people, men and women, are corruptible. Men and women do not respond well to power, to wealth, greed, deceit, power, authority, 
They can quickly turn someone into a dictator, make them power hungry. Such was the case with this man, Karl Marx. Everybody's familiar with Karl Marx from eighth grade civics class. At least I hope so. Karl Marx was the founder of communism and socialism. His life in the 19th century is still impacting our lives in the 20th and 21st century. I don't know if you know this or not, but Karl Marx was a hater of God. He was a cheerleader for evil. The family members of Karl Marx believed that he was possessed by a demon. One of his biographers, Robert Payne, wrote, quote, he had the devil's view of the world and the devil's malignity toward human, humanity. He seemed to know that he was accomplishing the works of evil. Karl Marx died on March 14th of 1883. He was buried in the Highgate Cemetery in London, which is still to this day considered the Mecca for Satanism and the occult. Karl Marx is the founder of communism and socialism. Marxism, number one, is anti-God. Marx hated Christianity. Marx believed that in order for socialism to succeed, loyalty to the church must be replaced by loyalty to the government. One of my fears, and one of the reasons I'm so hard on this political agenda the church seems to be adopting, is because I fear that the church today is far too hopeful in their government. Our eyes are on Washington and Atlanta more than on Jesus Christ. My hope is not in who sits in the White House. My hope is who sits on the throne in heaven, period. Number two, Marxism is compatible or incompatible with free religion. I, this is personal opinion, but I don't think you can be an educated follower of Jesus Christ and be a socialist at the same time. I don't think it can, it, it can happen. They're incompatible. They cannot peacefully coexist. They're complete and total opposites. Marx was not an atheist. Don't misunderstand. Marx believed in God, he just hated him. His writing proves it. Marx once wrote, I will rid the world of capitalists and I will rid heaven of God. That's Marxism, that's socialism. Number two, Marxism is totalitarian. The term totalitarian dates back to the days of Mussolini. Totalitarian governments believe that everything belongs to the state. Nothing is outside of the government. No one can come against the regime. The people have no power whatsoever in a totalitarian regime. Just ask our brothers and sisters struggling in North Korea. Number three, Marxism is divisive. It's divisive. Originally, communism and socialism, Marxism set out to divide the rich from the poor, to separate the boss from the laborer, the owner from the employee. Hugo Chavez, the dictator in Venezuela, spent billions of dollars on government propaganda pitting the poor against the rich. In a socialist regime, the leader needs the poor to hate the rich, to covet, to envy anyone who has more than they have. Socialism in America is now along racial divides. In America, socialism tries to pit white against black or black against Hispanic. Divide and conquer the mantra of socialism. They do this by calling every disagreement, every point of conflict, racist. If I raise my voice to speak against the mainstream, I'm quickly shouted down as a racist. If you disagree with someone in power, you're quickly branded 
a racist. Church, might I remind you that when everything in America becomes racist, then nothing is racist. The term loses its power. That's why any kind of true, constructive dialogue between people who disagree is quickly swallowed up in controversy, quickly shouted down by name-calling. That's because Marxism is divisive. Number four, Marxism is deadly. In 1999, a book was published called The Black Book of Communism. The authors of that book tabulated the death toll under Karl Marx and, John, and Lenin, the two leaders of communism. Did you know that in the 20th century alone, in Latin America, 150,000 deaths can be attributed to communism? In Eastern Europe, one million deaths to communism. In Vietnam, one million deaths to communism. Africa, 1.7 million deaths. Cambodia, 2 million deaths. North Korea, 2 million deaths. The USSR, 20 million deaths. And at the top of the list, China, 65 million deaths to socialism, communism. That's question one. What is socialism? Here's question two. Well, what's that mean? What's that mean? I thought that was happening a half a world away. What's it mean for us? There is an undeniable and sizable visual shift in American politics and government toward Marxism. You see, again, under the guise of fairness and reparations and retribution and equality, those are all good ideas. Studies show that Americans are gravitating to favorable views of socialism. You can see it for yourself. Turn on the news. Socialism exists due to the, number one, destruction of our monuments. You see, when you turn on your television and you watch a bunch of college students and a bunch of masked protesters tearing down a statue of Thomas Jefferson, these aren't simply exuberant young people out to have a good time. This is a concerted effort in America to erase our past, to deny our history, to undo the principles that this nation was founded upon. Understand that we can't celebrate Thomas Jefferson for writing the Declaration of Independence because Thomas Jefferson owned slaves. We've got to erase him. We can't celebrate George Washington as perhaps the most prominent and godly leader of men the United States has ever known because he was fallible too. Erase him. Because if you can erase the past, then somebody can sit down and rewrite it. Somebody can reshape the future if we can get people to forget the past. Isaiah chapter 46 verse 9 says, remember the former things. That word remember is used 164 times in your Old Testament alone. It appears God wants us to remember certain things. Socialism wants us to forget. I am God. There is no other. I'm God and there's none like me. Here's number two. Cancel culture. You know what cancel culture is in America? It is totalitarianism powered by the internet. If you disagree, we will cancel you. If you speak up and speak out against the mainstream, we'll erase you. That's totalitarian. That's why the homosexual and the transgender movement have already made their way into some of our elementary schools, if you can believe it. I recently read of a middle schooler in Wisconsin Wisconsin, the heartland of America. 
This middle schooler is facing charges of sexual harassment for using the wrong pronoun in the lunchroom. Imagine. It's not over there. It's here. Here's number three. Dismantling the family. I don't know if you know this or not, but there are those in government espousing a progressive agenda towards slow socialism that believe they're better off raising your children than you are. In fact, you are the problem with your children. You filled them full of all that old-fashioned stuff, like truth and reality and God. There are those in government who believe they should be in charge. They should have the power to teach your children. Here's number four, the redistribution of wealth. Oh, by the way, let me back up and say this. Do you realize that studies have proven, history has proven, that strong families in a society build a strong society? Weak families in a society build a weak society. That's why your marriage is precious in the eyes of God. That's why your family is precious in the eyes of God. Because family is the premier building block of society. Here's number four, the redistribution of wealth. Redistribution of wealth. Socialism wants the government to claim all private assets. That means no more private property, no more private ownership of a home or a business, nothing. The government owns it all. Then the state gets to redistribute, redistribute, <laughs> redistribute all of those assets as it sees fit. Again, in the name of fairness, in the name of justice, in the name of equality, that's going to supposedly rid the world of, of poverty. Hear me, church, there's never been one successful socialist experiment across the globe ever in history, not one. Politicians like to talk about the Scandinavian nations of Norway and Denmark and and, and Sweden, but they're not socialist nations. They're capitalist nations who've adopted a welfare state to take care of their poor. There is a big, big difference. Here's number five, or whatever it is, defund the police. This one kills me. This one kills me. Defund the police because the police are racist. The police are unfair. The police are ineffective. So defund them. It might surprise you to know that in every major city across America where politicians have slashed the law enforcement budget, that community has seen a dramatic and almost instantaneous rise in petty and violent crime. Huh, surprise. You see, the goal is not simply to quash the police or law enforcement. The goal is to see the local government fail so the state, the big government, can come in and take over. Nationalize and control. You see, there are those who embrace a progressive socialist agenda who believe someone in Washington is far better equipped to solve problems in Statesboro. Someone in Washington is far better equipped to solve your problems in Metter. I disagree. Here's question number three. What do we do now? What do we do now? Here comes the good part. Where do we go from here? Today, honestly, as I was writing this this week, I felt like an Old Testament prophet. You know, I wanted to grow a big, long beard, you know, come out here in this robe kind of thing with a stick. The question is, will Americans heed the warnings? Will they see the warning signs or will they ignore them? Here's what you can do. Number one, embrace your Bible. Embrace the Word of God. What does the Bible say about work? Do you know? What does the Bible say about wealth? Do you know? 
The Bible has an enormous amount of information on these subjects. Work, remember, was not punishment for the fall. A lot of people in the church, they think, oh, well, if it hadn't been for Adam and his disobedience, we wouldn't have to work. No. Work existed prior to Genesis chapter 3 because of the dignity that comes from work. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, 28, excuse me, says that work is honorable. And conversely, if you can work and you don't, that's dishonorable. Exodus chapter 22 affirms private property and the ownership thereof. It seems from my Bible that God wants us to work hard and earn good things in this life. And there's nothing wrong with that. Exodus chapter 20 verse 15 condemns theft. Taking something that doesn't belong to you. You've got it. You've got more than I have. I take yours. That's socialism. Exodus 20 verse 17 condemns coveting what belongs to someone else. In our culture, we would call that class envy. If we can just get all the poor and middle class people to envy the rich, maybe we can even things out in the end. Proverbs 13 verse 22 promotes saving. Acts chapter 4 promotes land ownership. Matthew chapter 25 promotes investment. Luke chapter 10 and verse 7 teaches that the worker is worthy of his hire. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10 goes as far as to say that if someone does not work and they can, they should not eat. Now, get this. Socialism contradicts every one of those biblical principles. Every one, without fail. Followers of Christ should frame their arguments not in the political rhetoric that comes out of Washington or from the news channels. Followers of Jesus Christ should frame their rhetoric, frame their discussion based upon the Word of God and those principles. Number one, embrace your Bible. Number two, reject the lies. Popular culture often has no connection with reality or common sense. Haven't you sat in your household one night watching the news and just thought, I cannot believe what I'm seeing? Just because someone in power, just because someone in media, just because someone has a loud and expansive voice says something that does not make it true. Reject the lies. Here's number three. Be a follower, not a fan. We've got plenty of admirers of Jesus. There are admirers and fans of Jesus all across this land filling our churches today. What we really need are followers of Jesus Christ, not admirers, not fans. There's never been a more important time in history for followers of Jesus to act like Jesus than now. Number four, consider a small group. Tyler talked about this earlier. You realize in the first century, Followers of Jesus Christ faced intense persecution. The only way they survived, I mean, they suffered simply because they associated themselves with Jesus Christ and his way or his church. The only way they survived was their small group. Their small group of like-minded followers of Jesus Christ. They relied upon each other. They encouraged and helped one another. A close group of like-minded Christ followers is invaluable during difficult times. If you don't have one, I'd encourage you to build one. Here's number five. Resist. Resist. In Acts chapter 5, Peter stood before the politicians and he shouted to the top of his voice, We must rely on God, not on human beings. I'd like to see more of that coming from the church. Speak out, speak up. Don't just grumble about what you see on television. Don't just complain about what they're doing in Washington. Teach your children otherwise. Get involved in your local government. Push back. Here's number six. Remember. Remember Venezuela. 
Venezuela was once a free and prosperous nation, a beautiful country. Today, 96% of her citizens live below the poverty line, 96, under the socialist regime. They make less than $1 a day, American dollar a day, for all their labor. And socialism caused every bit of it. Medicine is almost impossible to come by in Venezuela. 5.5 million people have fled that socialist regime, and socialism caused every bit of it. Here's number seven. You can pray and you can influence. I hope that for every one hour of Fox News you watch, you'll pray at least that long. Because my hope is not in Tucker Carlson. My hope is not in radio talk show hosts. My hope is in Jesus Christ and his plan. We listen to too much propaganda and we pray too little and that troubles me. Now, here comes the good part. Matthew 5, verse 13. The words are in red because Jesus said them himself. You, he said, my followers, you are the salt of the earth. I attended a funeral a couple of weeks ago, and the man that was buried was referred to multiple times. Man, that guy, he was the salt of the earth. Well, what does that mean? Here, I'll tell you what it means. It means you make the world taste a little better. It means you make the world a little more palatable, a little, little better place to live in. I've heard teachers describe salt as, well, it's a preservative, and the church is supposed to preserve the world. No, they don't know their eschatology. <laughs> the word Jesus is using here simply means flavor. We put salt on our foods when we cook to make them taste better. I'm growing kale in my garden right now. Believe me, when we cook that kale... I'm going to load it with salt. (laughs) Jesus is saying, you, church, you followers of mine, you're supposed to make the world taste better. Keep reading. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world, so don't ignore your influence. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, verse 15. Neither do people light a lamp and then put it under a bowl. That would be idiotic. Why would you ignore your influence? Why would you light the lamp and then cover it up? The lamp exists to help us find our way in the darkness. The darkness isn't going to change, church. The world will always be muddy. Tyler says, pagans will peg. Think about that. You'll get it in a minute. Look at verse Oh, then it gives light to everyone in the house. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Church, we are called not to condemn the world, not to even change the world. We're called to light it up. Why? Because the world has been, is, and always will be a very muddy place. The light is that much more important. Now, The Bible teaches in Revelation chapter 20 and among other passages that there is coming a day when justice and fairness and equality will rule the earth. It's called the millennium. For 1,000 years, the Bible teaches, Jesus Christ will be in charge of what goes on in planet earth. The Bible describes in Isaiah that that's the day the lion is going to lay down or walk along with 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 a cow. The wolf is going to lie down with the lamb. The leopard is going to play with the goat. 
and a little child is going to lead them all. But here's what else the Bible says. Even under that utopian system, men will rebel against God. If they'll rebel then under those conditions, they'll rebel today. They cause and create the darkness, the havoc, the controversy and confusion in which we live. And it's our job not to correct them, not to even stop them, but to light it up to do something about it. You see, Jesus called himself the light of the world. How can he be the light of the world if it's not through us, through you and through me? He is the light in the darkness. Let's pray. I'm going to give you a moment to pray silently before I close in prayer aloud. So take this time and do a little business with God. Let's pray. Our Father in God, thank you for the much-needed rain, proving once again that you always supply our needs. You provide for us. You comfort us. You grant us peace in the midst of confusion. You give us light in the middle of darkness. Father, may we take that light and live it out in our community. Father, may those around us see our good deeds and then turn around and glorify you, our Father who's in heaven. I pray it in your Son's name. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. I hope you go make it a fantastic day. I will see you next time.